Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Daniel Thomas, who was the co-executive director of 42nd Street Moon Theater Company. 42nd Street Moon has been around since the 90s. Daniel Thomas and his co-executive director, Darren Carollo, have been around since 2016. Over the years, 42nd Street Moon has changed, except still at the Gateway, which was once called the Eureka. And I was actually a subscriber there back in the 90s in its very, very early days. And I guess I want to start with that before we move on to the new season, what the goals are of 42nd Street Moon and also other projects that the company has. Way back then, it was stage readings of very obscure 1930s and 40s musicals that Greg McKellen did. He was, I think, the co director with uh, Stephanie Rhodes at the time. When did you first hear about 42nd Street Moon? I grew up in the Bay Area. I was a native of the South Bay for a long time then, but I had gone to school down in Southern California and was working down there. And they actually came to my attention. We were starting to produce some staged readings of some lesser known shows in Long Beach. And my co-producer there, when we were talking about what kind of format it would take and what we wanted those shows to look like, he said, my model for this is 42nd Street Moon in San Francisco. He says, I want you to get familiar with them and what they do, and I want us to be doing that same sort of thing uh, down in L.A. And our first show that we produced was Pardon My English by the Gershwins, which is something that 42nd Street Moon did within a year of us doing it. And so that's how they first came across my radar. I moved back to the Bay Area uh, in 2014. And as I was working at various companies and uh, working as a musical director on, on various shows, I heard that Greg was retiring from 42nd Street Moon. And uh, Stephanie had, we had some friends in common, some colleagues in, in common at different companies. And she had said, you know, this is something you should look at. And at the time they were looking at just replacing Greg as an artistic director. And then as it turned out, they actually needed to hire two managing positions. And so they went through a nationwide search. And as it turned out, both of their candidates happened to be right here in the Bay Area. Our board president called both of us up separately. And he says, I have this idea and I need you to meet this other person. And he took us to lunch. And that was the first time we had met each other. And we, the three of us talked for about two hours. And I think we all walked away from that with a pretty clear idea of, of how this was going to turn out, which was great. Darren has a kind of high-powered background uh, in New York theater and elsewhere. Yeah, he uh, works with a producing partner, and they invest in some shows in New York. He invested in Bear, which played off-Broadway, which is a wonderful, wonderful piece. Uh, they recently invested in the Hello, Dolly! revival. So he's interested in keeping some fingers in the, the commercial theater uh, circuit. And then certainly, you know, he's been in the Bay Area for, I believe, 20 years or so working at pretty much all of the regional nonprofit companies in the area. Before we go on, I'm just going to throw this question out mm -hmm. to you. Pardon my English. A lot of it was missing 
at the time that you guys put it on. And I knew that from Greg, and I also knew that because I was working on a documentary on the Gershwins at the mm -hmm. time, and that was one of their flops. How was it reconstructed? Because it sounds as if you guys must have done the reconstruction. We did a little bit. In the early 90s, there was a project that did some studio recordings of a lot of the Gershwin's lesser-known oh, sure, yeah. shows. So they did that one and Lady Be Good. That's how I first came across Pardon My English, actually, was that recording and then a couple of my friends sang on that, that album. And I fell in love with the concept and fell in love with the music and then did the research and, and heard about what a flop it was. And that just intrigued me. Uh, I wanted to get my fingers into it and see, well, why, why didn't it work in 1933? And, and, you know, what can we do now to see what works and what doesn't? And we weren't interested in, in saving the show. We weren't interested. We were interested in uh, putting it up on its feet and giving an audience a chance to see exactly what it was. And uh, by that time, uh, the estates had found most of the material. So we had a pretty intact script to work with. We did a little bit of shifting musically and some adjustments. Uh, we, and then put it up as a staged reading. And I think Greg probably did some more extensive work on it. We were just doing, you know, two or three nights of staged readings at that point, as opposed to a three-week run. The stakes were a little lower for us. One thing Greg did is he did that quite a bit. He did it with uh, Out of This World with Cole Porter. He rewrote the script on that one. And they were working with a lot of material that it was very, very hard to find. They had to do a lot of work on orchestrations because back in those days, for flops, they threw everything out. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. Uh, Greg, first of all, Greg has an encyclopedic knowledge of musical theater. It's just amazing what he knows about the individual shows and about the history of the genre as as a whole. And he's he's just an expert and a great resource for that. And he did go through uh, with several of those shows and get permission from the estates to revisit them, look at the scripts, make updates, fill in the holes where those needed to be filled in. And you're absolutely right, uh, piecing together some of the, especially smaller pieces of music like reprises or scene changes or things like that, this, you just couldn't find anymore. And so uh, there was a lot of uh, digging and late nights, I'm sure, trying to piece those back together. And as we were going through, coming in and going through boxes of stuff and archival materials, you know, we would find some of these things uh, that were just fascinating. We have uh, a couple boxes of penciled, scores for shows that I, I'm not sure that we're supposed to have in our possession, but somehow they ended up here. One of the things that Craig was doing is he was reviving these old, I don't want to call them war horses because they weren't around enough to be actual war horses. The audience was also getting older and older. I remember going with a friend who was over 70 and he was one of the younger people there at the time, which meant that the audience must have been dying off when they turned it over to you. It's hard to say. I know over the last five or seven years, the company was looking at what its mission was and how its audiences were developing or not developing and, and certainly looking at the budget and, and going, what is the next step in our evolution? How do we move forward? Uh, we still encounter uh, several hundred patrons at each show who tell us that they've been here 15, 20, 25 years. So we know we've still got a lot of the old guard in there. You know, one of the things we face is the same thing a lot of regional theaters face is the graying of the audience in general. And how do you develop new audiences? And as you look at Gen X and millennials and, and fighting for their entertainment dollar, what is going to bring them in the doors? One of the things that we hear a lot of time in, in industry conferences is actually you're not even fighting for the entertainment dollar anymore. You're fighting for the entertainment minute uh, when you have 
streaming services and everything online and, and things coming at you in bursts, getting somebody to get out of the house and sit in a dark space for two and a half hours, it's a challenge. It's actually in the Bay Area getting a little worse because not only is 42nd Street Moon doing musicals, but you've got Bay Area musicals, you've got Broadway by the Bay, uh, you've got forays into musicals by SF Playhouse, and they didn't do them. You've got TheaterWorks doing musicals. But this means there's a lot of competition for a very specific kind of dollar. This is true. I think uh, when you talk about musical theater as a whole, there are certainly a lot of companies presenting uh, shows nowadays in the city and, and in the Bay Area. But I do think that most of them have a particular niche that they kind of fall into. So if you do a little uh, deeper dive into each of the company's missions, you'll see that there's some differences in what we're producing that make it worth your while to, to come see everything. You talked about Bay Area musicals. You know, they're very interested in doing your, your larger scale traditional shows. So you get a 42nd Street from them and you get a Crazy for You from them. And you get something like Ray of Light, who's you know, mission statement is blood, sweat, and musicals. And so they're doing that kind of edgy, for lack of a better term, type of material. And uh, we're fortunate in with, uh, that we have the history of our mission in presenting a lot of these lesser produced and lesser known shows that our audiences have come to expect that they're going to find stuff that's a little bit off the beaten path. So it's while we evolve and we might be doing fuller productions now than we used to, you know, as you mentioned, we started with staged readings and one piano and you moving into full sets and costumes and four or five musicians. When did all that happen? Uh, they started not using the scripts, I believe, around 2009, 2010. Isn't the, the, the cost different? It depends on a, a number of factors. The biggest cost for us outside of our, our talent and our artists is the royalties and the rentals for each show. And they actually are not terribly concerned whether you hold your scripts in your hand or you do a full production. They charge us the same rate no matter what we're doing. Well, why were they doing the scripts then? Why were they holding them? They were working on a shorter rehearsal period and a shorter run. And really, Greg's focus was just to put the shows up so audiences could hear the music, hear the lines. It wasn't so much about a fully realized production as much as it was here as a snapshot of what, how the show may have sounded to audiences at that time. Uh, well, I remember back way back when um, the strength of 42nd Street Moon was the harmonies and the singing. The weakness, which I talked to ensemble members, was that they got nothing. Mm -hmm. They got no direction whatsoever. They were on their own. Was that just because of the short rehearsal? It's partly because of the short rehearsal. Part of it is also the nature of some of those shows. Back then, there was very much a a here are your principles and here is your chorus and the chorus trots on and sings a couple verses of the number and trots back off and so you had kind of a a bigger demarcation in a lot of those other sh older shows uh, as opposed to today where you have a lot of chamber ensemble type of, of where people are playing two or three roles all the time and maybe there's not an ensemble in a traditional sense and that everybody's got their moment to shine. Daniel Thomas, getting back to how you came in, by 2009-2010, were they putting on the same kind of full-bodied musicals that you are now, or was it still more of a transition? I think it was still in a transition. They certainly were getting to more use of costumes, of, of set pieces, of props, and once they were able to get the scripts out of their hands, while still doing the Very Warm for Maze and the Wildcats of the World. 
so it did become kind of this transition, and I think that was one of the reasons they started to explore how the mission was going to evolve. When you have those titles, which are not necessarily going to pack in an audience for a three-week run, but you want to invest in the physical part of the production, the sets, the costumes, the lighting, and all of that to give you that experience, then you start to look at how the numbers play out, and you think, well, what are we going to do to, to make this work long-term? We wanted to look at the strengths of Moon, the singing, uh, the performances of the actors, the talent, the musicians, and how we could supplement that. And the low-hanging fruit for us is to, to boost up the physical aspect of the production. So let's look at sets and costumes and see how we can manage our budgets and still find a way to up our game in that area. Well, they were also kind of a rep company. The same people performed in every show. That's changed too. A little bit. I think you will still find uh, some of the actors that we end up using once or twice a year. It was funny. We, we had our cast posters in one of the other rooms and we were kind of just looking at the last three seasons and kind of going, well, you know, this person, oh, this person was in there four times and this person's in there three times. So you, you'll still see a lot of our favorite actors and you'll see that in the coming season as well. But we did know walking in that Moon had a little bit of a closed door reputation from that standpoint. And we wanted to make sure we were opening our doors to all of the artists in the Bay Area, regardless of their experience with Moon or any other factors, and make sure that this was a place where all artists can come and, and feel welcome to perform. What about equity? We've had a pretty good relationship with equity. Uh, we think it's important to maintain that relationship. We've been on the Bay Area theater contract for a number of years, and we uh, last summer, you know, finished the negotiation for another four years on that contract. So we're we're very pleased with the level of equity talent. Um, you know, my coming from L.A., uh, I wasn't sure. You know, you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of actors down there. And I was very impressed when I started working here in the Bay Area at the, at the level of, of talent and professionalism from the equity actors. You're listening to an interview with Daniel Thomas, who is the co-executive director of 42nd Street Moon Theater Company, which mostly does shows at the Eureka, the Gateway Theater uh, in San Francisco. But it just happened this past week, you guys did an in-concert of Titanic, the musical, and last year you did Follies. Why these one-weekend in-concert versions? Well, I think that helps continue the original mission of Moon, which is celebrate the musical aspect of musical theater. I had produced some in-concert versions of musicals when I was in L.A., and they were very successful, and we really enjoyed uh, the ability, even in your regional houses, uh, you're sometimes a little hamstrung in what you can afford in terms of a show's written for 25 musicians, and maybe you're going to get 16, and you know it was originally done with a cast of 40, and you've got 24, so the same way that, that Greg and Stephanie wanted to get some of these shows out so that people had the chance to hear these songs in their original context and hear how these characters and shows were developed, we wanted some of these shows to be given the chance to be heard the way they were originally intended. And so we've been picking shows that have beautiful, glorious orchestrations and a lot of great uh, choral writing and a lot of great music and uh, doing them with the full complement of musicians and actors. Have you figured out what you're doing next year yet? We've had some discussions. We're, we're not ready to announce it yet, but we're, we've got some, some things on the board. But let's look at this year's uh, shows. The first one, Pop Mikado, uh, from 1939. It's a jazz interpretation of Gilbert and Sullivan, originally an all-black cast, ran for only three months and vanished. And then in 1986, 
this guy David Bell came along and had a new adaptation which has now been making the rounds. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between this and the original, which I guess most of the material was lost because it was a flop? Uh, That's very true. So they only found a few songs, from my understanding, and so they kind of had to use their own best judgment in recreating what they thought the other songs would uh, fall into that pattern. And they did redo the book fairly extensively, so far as I know. And, you know, even though the original one, the 1930s production, took the Mikado and placed it in this this jazz kind of cotton club uh, setting. It still was of its time. It still featured some material that probably wouldn't play this way you want it to play today. And so the version that was done in the 80s uh, took care of a lot of those uh, and made it something that was less about Japan in and of itself and more of kind of this timeless and placeless group of actors and musicians who happen to be telling a story that takes place in Japan. Why pick this particular show? I produced it or I helped produce it in the early 90s in LA and I loved it. I felt it was so much fun. Uh, I think it appeals to a number of different audiences. A, it should appeal to your Gilbert and Sullivan fans who want to see how a show like that can be taken and twisted and turned on its head a little bit. And yet, you know all the tunes, you know all the lyrics, you know all the gags, but at the same time, it's presented in such an interesting and unique way. The score swings. Uh, we've got you know big band moments. We've got Andrew's uh, sisters moments. We've got some soulful jazz moments. For fans of that genre of music, it's got a lot for them. And then for our core audience, for those who've been coming to Moon for a long time, it has that appeal of a show from the 1930s that didn't get a long run, uh, that kind of vanished for a long time. And even the revival in the 80s, as you said, it's been revived a number of times here and there, but it never got the big splashy. It didn't make it to New York. It didn't uh, it's not playing, you know, in your national tours or anything like that. So it's still a very under the radar show. So I think it's it's great that we're going to be able to bring that to audiences. In terms of the politics of how you deal with the view toward African Americans in 1939, 1986, and even today, when you're looking at the script, what do you see? It transcends time. I think they did a really nice job with the script of just letting go of color of time of space of place this is probably the most diverse cast that has ever appeared on a moon stage not just african americans but asian americans uh latinas and caucasians it's a very diverse cast and and the script serves that there's you know sure you might say this is an art form that when it was originally done was done by a mostly black cast but there's nothing in the script that specifies it you just need people who can tell the story and give you the music what is the largest cast you can put into the uh, gateway? The largest cast we should put in or the largest cast we're going to put in? We can comfortably get 17 to 18. And it's more backstage than it is on stage. We have basically one large dressing area for the entire cast, and it's it's not spacious. We're working on that. Uh, Scrooge and Love, which is coming up, though, we do have a cast of 22. So we will be bursting at the seams We know that walking in, we know what accommodations we make. We're going to let our actors know how we can keep them comfortable and give them a good space to get ready and focus on what they're doing to perform the show. And we think we're going to make it work and it's going to help set us up for success as we move forward and maybe do some other shows that might have casts around 20. Next show is the Christmas show Scrooge and Love, which started world premiere in 2015. Uh, Larry Grossman has done a lot of 
musicals, mm-hmm. and I guess Greg lured him to do this one, or he found out nobody was doing it. What's the story on this? It's a sequel to Christmas Carol. It's a sequel to Christmas Carol. Larry and Dwayne Poole, who did the book, were working with Kellen Blair, who did who was the lyricist for this show, and he had just completed a show called Murder for Two, which we had done uh, back in 2012. And so the connection was kind of made through that, uh, that we were... Uh, a friendly place for for workshopping and bringing these kind of shows to life. And so they approached us and and that relationship started. So in 2015, we did the professional, the world premiere of it and had a great time with it. And it was really well well received. It's interesting. One of the first decisions uh, that Darren and I had to make literally our second day on the job uh, the following year in 2016 was they had already decided they were going to bring Scrooge back for a second year and we're thinking about it's sold so well do we want to move it to a bigger theater this year and i walked in the door and they said come with us we're going to marines memorial and we're going to negotiate a deal about whether to do the show a show that i hadn't seen that i wasn't very well familiar with going into a space the marines memorial theater which is a lovely space but i hadn't been in it for probably 25 years and they're like make a decision are we doing this or not we're like okay we're gonna do it and it turned out to be the biggest seller in Moon's history, far and away. It was an incredible success. And doing it in the bigger space allowed us to play a little more, get a little larger cast, bigger set. And so then the decision was, was to how often do we want to bring this deck? Do we want it to become a San Francisco holiday tradition? Do we want it to start and fall in line with a Nutcracker or uh, the original Christmas Carol? And we took a couple years off while we thought about what our model should be for programming for holiday shows, but it felt like we had enough of a breather to bring it back and uh, kind of give it a new run uh, this year. And we'll, then after this year goes, we'll see how we want to approach it in years moving forward. And that's at the Eureka now. Now we're back at the uh, or the Gateway. It's a sequel? What's the story behind it? So the story is, I think we all know how the original ends and Scrooge has been redeemed. It has now let go of his... Uh, bitterness and is ready to be a a giving and generous person and celebrate the spirit of Christmas. And so Scrooge in Love finds him one year later being the generous and giving person that he's become, but still missing something. And he he can't quite figure it out himself. And so then late one night, he is revisited by his ghost friend, Jacob Marley, who says, you're missing love. You are generous, you're kind, you're warm-hearted, but you are missing this opportunity to have love in your life. And they go on this journey of love's lost and love's found. And, you know, we learned that there was somebody in his life earlier. Uh, And so then the question becomes, can he find that again? And with the help of the ghosts and some other familiar characters, we we go on the journey with him. So Tiny Tim is there. Tiny Tim is there. The Cratchits (laughs) are there. The Fezziwigs are there. The next show you have is Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, which won a Tony in 2014. I saw it, I think, a year or so later when it went on tour out mm-hmm. here. Uh, your production is going to be somewhat similar to that production? Then? Yeah, that show is something that really fits in our wheelhouse is that plays best in a small space. It's a smaller cast. It's uh, 11 people and works well as a, as a real chamber piece. And I saw it in a much larger house down in LA and it kind of lost some of the the intimacy and I then when I saw it again in a smaller space and really in there with the characters I thought this is how the show needs to be done all the time a lot of these shows have gotten away from your you know eight principles in a course of 30 type of model and have really scaled down into these 
you know, 12, 13, 15 people shows. And yet they're still trying to play in 2000 seat houses. And I don't think the authors intend for the shows to work at that level. And I think when you do see them in the, in these more intimate venues, you, you get a much bigger appreciation for the show. I think Avenue Q is a great example of that, how it played off Broadway and became a huge, huge hit and then moved on the Broadway. And it was good for them because they could win the Tony and do all of that. But then after a while, they realized this worked better and they pulled it back off Broadway. And, you know, having seen it both in both a large and a small format, it's it works better as a small show. And I think a lot of these newer shows do. Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Okay. How does it open? I love it. And when we were in the callbacks for the show and we had everybody coming in, that was one of the numbers, the opening numbers, what we gave to almost everybody to come in. And uh, Darren, who's directing the show and I'm music directing it, uh, Darren's instruction was, was sing this and make us want to leave the theater. Make us feel so slightly creeped out and disgusted that we're not sure we want to stay in the theater for the rest of the show. And I love opening numbers that just say, you're not sure what you're in for. It's that old Ealing comedy, I believe, Kind Hearts and Coronets, mm -hmm. right? And setting up this story of, we're going to talk about this guy who's going to plot, you know, eight murders over the course of the night and see if he can get away with it. I think that's, it's certainly not, oh, what a beautiful morning, I'll tell you that. Are you going to have one person playing the eight? Yes, we are. Your own Alec Dennis. Yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> The next show is Pajama Game. It's an interesting film because it's Fosse's choreography and Carol Haney as the primary dancer, and he was her muse before mm -hmm. Gwen Verdon. How do you do a dance musical like that? I mean, it's also a political show. One of the nice things about the choreography in that show, when you go back and you look at some of the iconic numbers that came out of there, if you look at Steam Heat and you look at Hernando's Hideaway, Steam Heat's danced by three people. It has all of the iconic Fosse elements that you come to expect, but it's not a giant chorus number. And so we can give you that on, on our stage and do it with the three people as originally done and still give you the full feeling. Hernando's Hideaway has a lot of that, but it's also very much a character and a plot driven number. And so you have a lot of that movement, and that choreography in the context of getting us into the world. And so it's not necessarily 16 people all dancing in unison doing a kick line or anything like that. It's it's very much you're in this little corner for a second and then you're over in this balcony for a second and you're over here. So it works really well for us in that we can do a Fosse style show without worrying about having a 60 foot proscenium to do it in. It's a show about a union and a strike. It becomes very timely. It has a very special place in my heart. It's the first show I was ever in. I was in an elementary school production in third grade, which is kind of an off the beaten path choice for an elementary school. And I've worked on it five times since then. And, and really, I love the score. I think it's, you know, it's obviously got some iconic songs like Hey There and Hernando's Hideaway and Steam Heat. But it's a wonderful score. It's probably of the golden age scores that were big hits and won the Tony Awards. It's probably one of the ones that has kind of been a little bit forgotten in the last, there was a revival in, about 12 years ago. But overall, it, it hasn't gotten as much play as it, a lot of the other shows from that period have. So we felt it was a good choice for us. There's certainly some timeliness and, and some, you know, when you talk about what it was at the time and it, written in the time when unions were still very strong and very much a part of the American economy and dovetailing, you know, romance, workplace romance within that. 
it's about getting a raise of maybe seven and a half cents, but it's a raise. Yeah, it's it's these people are putting in the hard day's work and they just want to be treated fairly. And I think you you do see a lot of that today when you talk when they talk about living wages and, and all of the stuff that's going on today. And I think the artists our actors, certainly who are many times running from gig to gig to gig to make ends meet and they're acting one moment and teaching the other moment and they're driving for lift at the other moment and doing all this they can appreciate the amount of, of hard work and effort it, it takes to get food on the table and the final show daniel thomas two shows merrily we roll along the sondheim musical another flop but not a flop in another way because these days it's recognized as a key show in the Sondheim canon. Merrily we roll along, but you're also doing it in repertory with the original Kaufman Hart play, which was a big flop in the early 30s. So we have two major new initiatives that we announced this season, and it just so happens that they're both starting with the same show. And so the first one of them is the Sondheim Suite. And we decided that we wanted to be the first company to present all of the Sondheim canon, not just as a composer, but also as a lyricist. Uh, and also we're working on uh, shows that he didn't necessarily write for the stage. We're hoping that we can get through the entire canon in time for his 100th birthday. It's a little bit ambitious. We treated Saturday Night, which we produced last year, as the kickoff to that. And then Follies in Concert followed that up. And Merrily We Roll Along will be the next in that line. So we're you know, pleased to be honoring what is, you know, one of the giants of musical theater by getting hopefully every last note <laughs> that he wrote for the stage up onto our stage in one form or another. Some of them will be done as full productions like this one will. Some of them will be done as an in-concert like Follies was. And some of them will be done as kind of a limited run one week semi-staged reading. So we have kind of a battle plan that takes us up through about 2030. <laughs> The other initiative is uh, called Back to Back. And as you mentioned, we're going to be doing the musical and the play in repertory. We talked about how many musicals used plays as their source material. And one of the great things about the original Mission of Moon was, was the educational part of it. A lot of the shows that were done featured these incredible hits that were that became standards and part of the Great American Songbook that were in these shows that got lost. And so the chance to see those again and see where, how they, why they were written, the context and when they were written in, and there was an educational component to that was just wonderful. And we thought, how can we take that to the next level? And we started looking at some of these shows and going, well, why can't we show people where those came from? We did New Girl in Town a couple of years ago, which is based on Anna Christie. And he said, you know, wouldn't it have been interesting to have compared those two and see where the differences are. And so that kind of planted the seed for us. And we sat down and we came up with about 30 shows, 30 musicals that had plays as source material that we went, one or the other of these is worthy enough for us to consider doing. And then there was a bunch more that were like, oh, uh, well. Pygmalion might be. We talked about this. We said, well, that would be the easy example to show is My Fair Lady and Pygmalion. They're both well-known shows. Uh, everybody gets how one evolved into the other. And but. He said, have you put them up side by side? And so now we're starting with a little bit, something a little bit more obscure. As you mentioned, the Kaufman and Hart plays. The characters are different. Uh, obviously, the, the time periods are different. And of course, the conceit of, of, the, of the show is that it moves backwards in time as, as it tells the story of the, the main characters. The play uh, starts contemporary for them in the, the early to mid-30s and moves back to about 1916. The musical starts contemporary for that, about 1980, and moves back to 1955. And so while the arc 
of the plot is the same and the journey of the characters is basically the same. The situations that they're in, the styles, the characterizations, the dialogue, it's all very different. So it's going to, and one of the things that we're going to be doing with this initiative is it's going to be the same actors doing both. And so this is an interesting challenge is that we're casting people who can play believable in 1970 and 1930 and can switch back and forth from night to night. That's going to be tough for them to do memorizing, but that's another story. Well, I thought about that, but then when I thought about the other side of it, because there might be a world, I'm not saying this is happening, but a world that we said, okay, we're going to do My Fair Lady and Pygmalion. I think that would be harder on an actor because if you put those scripts up next to each other, there are obviously huge chunks of the play that just got dropped right into the musical. But then this line is a song cue in the musical. This line moves into this in the play. It's something a little bit different. And there's some orders that are switched. I think as an actor, that would be a lot harder to remember. That's my cue there. I hear this line over here, but it's not my cue in this version. Now you're doing these two shows in tandem. Uh, One final question. When you look at the two versions of Merrily, the 1930s version, is it as bad as the story goes? I don't think so. I think it was partly a product of being a little ahead of its time in terms of the, the story. And it's also when you start a show off with people who have fallen out of love and, and are in a, a bitter, tricky part of their lives, when that's the opening, it's hard for audiences to settle into that, I think. It takes a little bit. You have to be invested and say, well, I want to see how these these angry, sad people got where they are for the next two hours. And that's not always the easiest way to walk into a piece of theater. And I, th- I my guess would be, Uh, For audiences in the 1930s, that was probably a little more than they wanted to uh, put up with. I think the 30s obviously was a lot of escapism and let's get away from the real world in the theater. And that might have been a little much for them. I think the writing is is about as good as any Kaufman and Hart show that I'm familiar with. So I I certainly don't fault the material. Anybody who knows the the history of Merrily We Roll Along, and if you want to know the history of the show, this the best worst thing that ever happened is a documentary you can see on Netflix about the original show. And one of the reasons it failed, it's still not clear exactly, but we do know that the production was not the optimal one in 1981. Mm-hmm. Daniel Thomas, before I let you go, okay, so you've got the company doing these shows. What else does Moon do? We have, for the last seven or eight years, had a wonderful education program called Moon School, uh, and it started out as a series of summer camps for kids from ages 8 to 18. The goal of Moon School is always to not just do a summer camp, we're going to put on a show, but we'll get hands-on into all aspects of theater. So they were learning about acting, singing, and dancing in the morning, but then the afternoon they were learning about stage management and building the sets and sewing the costumes. And so it was a full experience because a lot of kids love the theater but don't necessarily want to be on stage. And so we help them find their way on, on the backstage or the front of house uh, side of things too. And in the last couple of years, and especially after Darren and I started, one of the things that we talked about was how can we make this program bigger? How can we really help bring this to, to more students? And so we had started adding some classes in during the school year, uh, afternoon and evening classes. And now this year, we're doing a major expansion of that. We're tripling the number of classes we have. We're adding another uh, summer camp, and we're going to actually be doing some full youth productions during the year. Um, so we're very excited about that. And we're also going to be 
uh, bringing some of those programs into the schools themselves through some teaching artists, through some in-school assemblies, and hopefully uh, reaching out to some of the schools to help them build up their own theater programs. You've been listening to an interview with Daniel Thomas, the co-executive director of 42nd Street Moon Theater Company. The next production is Hot Mikado, which plays at the Gateway Theater in San Francisco from September 25th to October 13th. For more information, you can go to 42ndstreetmoon.org. That's 42ndstmoon.org.